The Valhalla Project Niagara is a nonprofit charity for veterans and first responders who are living with post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Valhalla's flagship is its Learn to Live program, which is a five-day residential respite program. One of the founders, Graham Betts, says it's based on peer support and is not a replacement for professional therapy. He talks about the program, which is free for any veteran or first responder experiencing PTSD. Hi, Graham. How are you? Can you tell me a little bit about your background? I know that you were many decades in in the police, uh, and uh, I think you're still a an active officer. Yes. Can you tell me a bit about your PTSD? Because there's a really broad spectrum of of symptoms and experiences for people with PTSD. So what's it been like for you? Um, so as far as uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD uh, in 2013 after uh, after a major incident, uh, but that would have been arguably after 23 years of a, of a police career had already uh, kind of occurred. And looking back now in retrospect and with, of course, hindsight and everything like that, I pretty much realized that I, I was showing uh, traumatic uh, symptomology probably from the very beginning of my police career. I recall always having a sense of um, officer safety was always a huge thing of me, not realizing that was paranoia and hypervigilance at work. Um, and then as my career progressed, I always seemed to be involved in the adrenaline type of bureaus. I was in an auto theft bureau. I did bomb squad for five years. I did the criminal investigations. Um, so eventually when I had uh, a bad call in 2013, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And at that point in time, I was showing the full symptom package, everything from having uh, flashbacks. Uh, I was having uh, nightmares. I was having uh, intrusive thoughts during the day. Uh, sometimes uh, kind of like remembering calls, but sometimes just having intrusive feelings, uh, feelings like I was awash at a call. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe if, if, for somebody who's never had those intrusive uh, uh, thoughts type of thing. Uh, I was I was doing avoidance uh, type of behaviors, avoiding places and things and uh, um, kind of thoughts and emotions that would kind of uh, bring me to those areas of those traumatic calls. Because at this point in time, they've been piling up for 23 years. Um, you know, one of the one of the hardest thing was. Um, you know, I was trying to look at PTSD, but I couldn't remember a lot of the calls that I was on. Uh, I was showing signs of depression. I was unable to see uh, any positive emotions and I always seemed to be surrounded by negative emotions. I was separating myself from friends. Uh, I had a negative view of the world and myself and others. Um, and, you know, uh, I, activities that I used to do, I was no longer doing. Uh, sleep was non-existent. Uh, I was perpetually exhausted. Um, as my commute kind of got further and further, um, I recall, you know, in theory, waking up from a full night's sleep, uh, but still needing to pull over on the drive to work just because I was still so physically exhausted. Um, I was irritable. I was angry. It was like I always kind of knew there was a chaos inside me. So when I got diagnosed with PTSD, it was like a huge kind of shock and awakening. I'd always had that denial uh, type of thing. Um, oh, and my alcoholism was pretty much out of control my entire police career. Um, 
but kind of confusing because it because I went from a military culture, which drinking was part of, alcoholism was argu- arguably part of the social culture there, right into the police culture, um, who were the exact same thing, that proverbial work hard, play hard uh, type of thing. So I was immediately adopted right into uh, what I would say now was a culture of, of alcoholism. It's dramatically improved now, I think. Uh, but but back then it was it was very prevalent. Um, so when I was eventually diagnosed, I kind of had that, you know, I could start to learn about actually what PTSD and I was able to kind of really start to reconcile things that were occurring in my life with the actual symptoms that were there diagnostically all, all in a big book type of thing. Well, first responders and, and, um, well, Uh, EMS people who go to accidents where that are um, really, you know, violent in, in what has happened and, and fire and police, you lead a completely different kind of life than the rest of us. We, We do not experience the kind of day that you have. First time I talked to somebody about PTSD, and this was a number of years ago, I was in a, in a, a thought where, and I think a lot of people were where it was military. It was people who went overseas and saw things overseas that were just, you know, too much to cope with. And everybody understood that. I think that it maybe has come more to the forefront since we went through that three years of COVID because first responders became so important to everybody. But I think that people didn't really get like to me, it was always flashbacks, right? Or, you know, nightmares. So tell me a little bit more about what the different uh, types of um, PTSD and how does it manifest itself in different ways for people? So I was diagnosed with uh, complex cumulative PTSD uh, with severe depression and severe anxiety. And depression and anxiety are are pretty much automatically uh, diagnosed comorbid with PTSD. Now, all those uh, complex and cumulative, uh, they're just kind of words that's a little bit descriptive of the PTSD. At the end of the day, soldiers uh, go through traumatic, through the traumatic event of combat and that flicks that PTSD switch. First responders can also have those PTSD, uh, can have those traumatic uh, calls and situations for police officers. It can be uh, deadly force encounters. It can be um, all the high energy, high speed calls that are very visual and uh, very sensory. Uh, I kind of liken it when when first responders start their job, they get what I kind of call that stress backpack. And every kind of bad call just kind of is a pinch of sand in that backpack. And that can be everything from just seeing somebody that's been a victim of assault, somebody where a child is living in borderline poverty, right, to living in poverty, uh, child abuse. Just when you see, you know, um, low-income housing projects, the proverbial ghettos, and it just kind of like, wow. So each one of these calls just kind of just adds that little bit of stress buildup, and that's the cumulative effect of calls. And then, of course, you have the calls that kind of rock your world and that's when you get bricks and stuff like that thrown in your backpack. And then you have the big bowling ball calls. And, you know, uh, those are the ones where, you know, shortly thereafter you realize that call is still reverberating. There are thing aspects about that call that are just 
completely um, kind of adverse. So in, in 2013, for me, it was uh, a couple of children uh, getting struck by lightning. Uh, the CPR life-saving efforts that I provided on, on my victim were unsuccessful and uh, my victim or patient uh, passed away. Uh, so that call really rocked me. Um, and then eight years later, uh, had kind of another call. Uh, in the therapy world, we kind of say your first, your worst, and your last. Uh, and then my last call was um, uh, came across as a medical call, and I provided life-saving efforts to a young child. Uh, the cause of death was later deemed to be starvation, uh, something that I had a real hard problem uh, reconciling, considering I was living in one of the most, we were policing in one of the most populous areas in the world. Um, so that call was, uh, that call completely knocked me out of frontline uh, policing. I think I kind of went off on a tangent as is very normal there in, uh, in the PTSD no, world. No, 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 uh, not but, at all. But one, one of the things I say is kind of how you got the T in your PTSD doesn't really matter. The way kind of people living with PTSD, it really is all the same, whether you are a veteran, whether you are a police, fire, ambulance, uh, emergency medical staff. Uh, the way PTSD presents itself on that daily basis is is all the same how you got the t that's you know that can be either through warfare for combat through through victimization uh such as a sex assault um can even be involved in a bad violent car accident um those can be those traumatic events so uh the how really has never been that important to me because i found that when we start discussing uh the traumatic events a lot of bravado comes out that's kind of counter productive to the healing process i think i think i'm getting ahead of myself though well no but i i think that that is um uh like part of the culture um is and this might be not the right word but i think this is how most people would see it is it's a macho job very it's not, and it's not seen as a as a woman's job i actually have uh down the street i have a couple who were both firefighters and um but it's not generally a woman's world. And so there has been a lot of bravado. My understanding is that it's taken a long time for people in the firehouse or, or police or EMS. And there's more women in EMS, so I'm not going to go there because I don't know that situation. But certainly in police and fire, because of the kind of calls you go to, but you're also, like, like you said, you're a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. Um, and it's a bunch of guys and you get back. And I would think that that would be the one coping skill you would have that and, and drinking, which also is no surprise. There is the definite, uh, bravado, um, you know, kind of that macho, um, because they were traditionally male dominated, uh, em employment areas. And to a certain extent, they still are. Um, I think uh, police and fire departments are now kind of getting at about the 30 to 35 uh, degree range. Uh, paramedicine, uh, probably at 50-50. Uh, but that being said, our the program that, that I'm part of, our last couple of cohorts have actually been very female dominated. And through no actual processing, our last cohort was essentially 100% female. Uh, and that was just just the way it was. And and maybe that's part of what you're mentioning that, um, you know, that, that ability to ask for help. 
And I don't necessarily wrap that as a male-female thing. I wrap that more as like a superhero helper type of thing. When you've spent decades being Wonder Woman or Superman and putting on that cape and helping people. And, you know, when you when you're the one that moves towards the sound of calamity, that's a certain thing. When everybody's moving one way and you're moving the other way towards what's going on, that's a certain sort of um, psyche. So when all of a sudden you're trying to say, wait, now I have to call all these people to help me. I'm the problem. That's very, very hard. Plus, when you throw in some of some of the things that uh, PTSD does is it kind of takes away the confidence that you have in yourself. You're basically having depression. So you have low self-esteem. You start devaluing yourself. I know that on a daily basis, my PTSD tries to convince me, uh, you know, that I'm a coward, that I am completely making up all of my illness. Uh, you know, that I'm afraid to do the job, uh, that I'm unworthy, you know, all the things that depression throws at you. And that's not just a, a five second conversation that I have to have every day. It's more of a pervasive, just all encompassing wave after wave of just self-loathing and self-deprecating thoughts, um, which you have to constantly battle in order to kind of get above Um so when we've got these multiple calls that we went through and we always seem to be able to reconcile them in some other way, or, you know, I don't have all the symptoms, so I must not have it. Uh, it gets really hard to really accept that help. And I would say that perhaps from a male perspective, yeah, sometimes it seems maybe it's even harder for us as the big, brave uh, protectors um, to ask for help. But I do know that it's the exact same uh, way for our for our female superheroes uh, that I've had the pleasure of at least interacting with. I know that, you know, they have the same sense of um, self-worth that they had when they put on their their so their uniforms. And now it's it's very diminishing to not be in that role anymore, to be on the other side. Tell me about Valhalla Project. And this is something that you started um, with a couple of other first responders. And it's a program, um, I, I think it's a five-day program where, where people can come and start to learn skills to, you know, it's not, it's not a cure to PS, PTSD, but to learn skills that they can take into life and help them, you know, going forward. And I think some of them are still active, active on their job as well. Oh, yes, yes. We, we have people in, in various stages. So so after my final uh, bad call, I eventually realized I had to get away from frontline policing. So I transferred to the Organizational Wellness Bureau, and, and that was basically the policy center for mental health. I was implementing mental health safeguarding programs and that type of thing. But when officers would kind of get the courage and they would step forward into my office and they would kind of step up and say, listen, I don't know what's going on with me. But my whole world just seems to be in this high state of chaos and flux. And I make, you know, and they're basically start to try to blurt and blab out, you know, I'm angry all the time. I, you know, I'm snapping at my kids. I'm not sleeping. And they're going through all the symptoms. Um, and then I would found myself, I would going, you know, and you're crying every day and, you know, you're always sick to your stomach and maybe you're throwing up in the mornings and stuff like that. And you just kind of see that sense of release when they kind of go, oh, my God, 
you know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm there with you. Um, and then they would finally sit down and I would have the same three to four hour conversation, kind of that welcome to the world of PTSD. These are the things that are now normal in your life and you kind of have to accept them as such. So I was giving that same three to four hour speech uh, to every officer that came into my office. So eventually when I couldn't handle my own PTSD, I was crying at my desk every day. I was having panic attacks repeatedly, um, just a full symptom package. I eventually had to book off um, sick on my PTSD. But people were still contacting me. I was still the person that people called. I was still the face of PTSD. I had Maverick, my service dog, for the last few months I was at work. So people knew to call me. Uh, plus, maybe everybody knew I was crazy and to maybe reach out because I could probably help that way too. Um, and then I started to get really, really bored. And then I ran into uh, Sean Bennett, uh, who I used to be in the military with. And we started chatting and he had a service dog. So it was apparent that we both had PTSD. And we started discussing, uh, eventually we started discussing how, although my symptoms and his symptoms were very, very pronounced, we were still well managed and how we were doing it. And it kind of evolved that we were kind of intuitively using a multifaceted management system uh, in regards to our PTSD. Um, and, you know, I started uh, I started looking around, uh, you know, uh, support meetings had been highly popularized in Hollywood or whatnot, and I was looking around for some of them, and there was nothing in Niagara, so I started one. Um, at the time, I was also, uh, prior to me going off sick with PO Police or with my police agency, um, I had started a master's program in uh, counseling uh, psychology. So when it came time for me to look and I, I kind of, I was bored. I wanted to do something. I was, you know, speaking to people one-on-one, -on -one, but everything I was saying just was starting to kind of standardize. So we came up with a multifaceted approach involving education and support network and support meetings, coping skills and lifestyle and medications and addiction. So eight facets that you, you, you may not be affected by them all the time, but they're probably going to rear their ugly head at some point in time. And I used to say that if you find yourself in that proverbial mental health high-speed wobble, take a look at those facets. I'm pretty sure you're not addressing a couple of them. Um, so what we started to do was I kind of I went away on a couple five-day programs, and they were missing a key component, like amazing programs. Uh, but a lot of them were missing that key component of suicide. They didn't discuss it. It was still whispered and stuff like that. And I just, I'd had too many friends that had kind of succumbed to suicide after a missed conversation um, that I decided, uh, you know, I'm not going to be afraid to have those conversations. So I started asking people openly, you suicidal? You're like, oh, no. Okay, thanks. And um, so the whole program is basically to be able to give us the education to know when our symptoms are bad, to know how to check in with ourselves in regards to our suicidality, our, our anxiety and our depression. And when those numbers are a little bit high on the scales to tell people so that we can start to alleviate the shame in regards to that discussion. So that if there does come a time that somebody is highly suicidal, 
A, it's not a last minute thing that somebody's finding out about. It's been a constant buildup throughout the day. We've kind of known, we're monitoring, we're checking in, we're encouraging you to check in with your therapist and stuff like that and talk to people, get out, try, you know, maybe we meet up for a coffee. But eventually there may be a time that the safest place for you is at a hospital. And after a 30-year career, it's always great when you can end up at the hospital kind of drama-free. So our people kind of have the education to know when they're in distress and they can make those arrangements that they end up at the hospital going, okay, I'm feeling highly suicidal and this is where I have to be. And there's no shame in that. And we've had several of our uh, program uh, people, uh, participants that have been in distress and have ended up in the hospital and they're there safely. And that's kind of what the program is all about. Let's talk about the labyrinth, okay. which is in um, what was the old Fairview golf course in St. Catharines in Fairview mall parking lot. Uh, sorry, golf course on that, on that uh, green area. Now, when I heard labyrinth, when it first opened, I automatically thought it was one of those, um, you know, things you, maze. Thank you. You went around and it was trees and you had to find your way out. So we went down and we took our two dogs and I started to walk it. And it's it's flat and it's sort of a paved area. It's not large and it's round in circles. And I started to walk it and I was constantly, well, I don't know how this works and I don't know where to go and I don't like this and this doesn't work at all. How do I get out of here? And my whole mind was, how do I get somewhere? And then slowly, without me even really knowing it, my mind went to just following, following, following. following. And I didn't think about it. I thought, oh, there's a little opening. I'll go there. And, and I stopped thinking about now, eventually I had to get out of it. But by that point, I didn't want to step over a line or do anything because this has become kind of like a really cool, safe, calming space. And I didn't expect that. Yeah. So uh, we use labyrinths as a, as an active coping skill. Um, now the history of labyrinths, uh, they kind of harken back to uh to the days of uh, pilgrimages to the Holy Land. And uh, those who couldn't do uh, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, uh, the sick or the really, really rich people, um, they would be able to show they were dedicated to the pilgrimage by going to churches. And these labyrinths would be in the church basements and you could walk the labyrinth and that would symbolically be you doing uh, your pilgrimage uh, to Jerusalem uh, as part of your uh you know, uh, debt to the church type of thing. Um, so labyrinths have always been used as a kind of a meditative coping skill where, you know, you're just taking 15 to 20 minutes out of your day. Um, you, we recommend have something you're thinking about and intentions, something that's bothering you and just 15 minutes to think about it. Now, the thing about a labyrinth that's different from a maze is that uh, a labyrinth has all sorts of twists and turns and you go in all sorts of directions, but there are no decisions to be made. You just keep walking and you will always get to the center. So if your goal is to get to your center, uh, then you just start at the labyrinth, just keep walking and you will get to the center. Um, so we use that as a metaphor uh, for the PTSD journey. Some days, even when you're really, really in distress, you know, highly suicidal, there's no real decisions to be made, just keep moving forward. Um, 
we we have a saying that PTSD is only dangerous when you're suicidal and alone. Graham, thanks so much uh, for talking to me. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I point out is we don't uh, charge for any of our programs. Yes, sorry, I did not mention that. do not need uh, permission or approval from their agencies. They don't even have to tell anybody that they're coming. They can self-refer, self-register. And like I said, zero charge. We feed you. We give you a place to stay. All you got to do is have the courage to show up for five days.